Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Morning Report podcast supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation and QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based practice in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you, calculate for over 400 easy-to-use decision support tools, and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that's qxmd.com apps. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the St. Paul's Hospital Morning Report podcast. Uh, I'd like to welcome our usual guest. Hey, Danny. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good, thank good. you. Hey, Barry. Hey, thanks. <laughs> and we're joined by Katrina Dutkiewicz. You've heard Katrina on previous episodes presenting. She was recently the chief resident here at St. Paul's. Hey, Kat. Hello. So Kat's now a GIM fellow here at UBC, uh, and she's going to present us an interesting case today. I think we'll just jump right in. Okay, sounds good. So there's been a lot that's happened with this case, so if at times I move you along, I'll apologize, but I'd still like for us to have some good discussion. Um, so we'll start right at the beginning. This is a six-year-old Filipino lady who comes in with a three-month history of blurry vision and visual changes, predominantly in her right eye. She went to see an optometrist and actually was noted to have papilledema, so she was sent into the emergency room for further assessment. So getting a little bit more history from her, she's had three months of blurred vision and visual changes in her right eye, and she's also been having headaches. As mentioned, she saw that optometrist and was noted to have papilledema. She also endorses fevers, night sweats, and a weight loss of 50 pounds over the last year. Her weight over the last few months, however, has been stable. Uh, She recently noticed a painful lump in the right side of her neck, and she's actually being worked up in the community for query latent TB, given her background being from the Philippines and these constitutional symptoms. Uh, Her past medical history includes hypertension. She has type 2 diabetes with a hemoglobin A1c actually of 5.9%, and she had cataract surgery three years ago bilaterally. She's on Ramipril, 5 milligrams once a day, has no known allergies. Uh, She works in food services at UBC Hospital, previously worked as a cleaner uh, in the VGH operating rooms. She's a non-smoker, doesn't drink alcohol or use recreational drugs, and she's married, lives with her husband and his family. Uh, In terms of her family history, her daughter unfortunately died at the age of 10 years old of a febrile illness. There is a family history of hypertension and type 2 diabetes, but no family history of malignancy. From her initial presentation, I actually have a very limited physical examination that was documented. I didn't see her at this point in time. So all I can tell you at this point is that her blood pressure was elevated at 210 on 88, and she did have cervical as well as inguinal lymphadenopathy that was palpable, and then the papilledema we knew about already. Uh, In terms of her preliminary investigations, she had a normal CBC and differential, Her glucose was 9.2, sodium normal at 139, potassium 5.1, bicarb also elevated at 32, normal uh, renal function with creatinine 79, calcium um, was a bit low at 2.07, we don't have an albumin at this point, magnesium normal, phosphate high at 1.48. Her liver panel was pretty much unremarkable, AST and GGT were low but not high, and LDH was normal, troponin was negative. INR and PTT were normal, and um, HIV testing uh, was negative. Given the papilledema and the headaches, she gets a CT head done in the emergency room. And this actually shows a 12 millimeter by 8 millimeter by 6 millimeter intraaxial lesion in the left occipital lobe, as well as they note a prominent and tortuous cortical vein in the left transverse sinus, but no acute bleed or other findings of concern. 
And you also have a CT of the chest given this TB workup in the community. So on that, they didn't know any cavitary lesions or evidence of pulmonary TB, but she did have a few small mediastinal nodes, few supraclavicular lymph nodes, uh, bilateral axillary lymph nodes, and then she was noted to have innumerable sclerotic lesions throughout her skeleton, including all vertebral levels, the sternum and the manubrium, and multiple ribs bilaterally. Um, just to comment more on that CT of the head, radiology felt this was most consistent with a cavernous malformation. Um, they recommended an MRI to further work it up, and they were concerned about metastases causing these sclerotic lesions in the skeleton. Uh, so I'll pause there and see, based on that, if you have any kind of preliminary thoughts or anything else that you'd like me to try and fill in. Let me add just one more thing, because uh, I'm aware of the potential diagnosis. When she presented to emergency room, she was treated as a hypertensive urgency slash emergency based on her hypertension and based on the papilledema. So that's the other piece of information that uh, we have. I think that's fair to say that she does have like what could very well be a hypertensive emergency urgency. Like she does have that, but that certainly doesn't explain the rest of her case. That is the cough and you have to figure out why of this case. So I'm just kind of, I'm wondering like Steph, what do you think is like the specific like the the window into this case, what's like the most specific thing that's going to get us there? Yeah, um, I've been thinking about that. You know, I think some people talk about this as the key log. Um, like what is the log that if you do a really good job sorting out is going to allow the log jam to break and the logs to progress down the river? It feels like, I don't know how big these nodes are, the adenopathy is in the chest, but it does feel like an objective abnormality. And if they are amenable to being biopsied, uh, that may give you a pretty quick answer to at least part of what's going on here. I can tell you the largest axillary one was 11 millimeters. That so not, they're not that big. Yeah, gosh, like the presentation here was blurry vision in the limited to the right eye. So like monocular papilledema, gotta say, don't have a strong differential diagnosis for that. I think I'd say bilateral mm -hmm. papilledema. Oh. Symptoms were unilateral, okay, but she had great. bilateral Okay, great. Okay, back on track. Um, good. <laughs> so, and that I'm going to ascribe to her blood pressure. But I agree with you that, that on its own, Danny, I don't think sorting out the cause of this woman's hypertension is going to give us the answer to overall what's going on here. So the presentation is about blurry vision, but the stuff that I'm interested in that I think we could probably actually figure out is fevers, night sweats, and weight loss in a lady with pretty diffuse adenopathy, at least in the chest, and multiple sclerotic lesions on her skeleton. I feel like those are probably all going to tie into being the same problem. That's my hope. Yeah. I feel like the only good news about having diffuse lymphadenopathy is that there's a good chance that something is like is actually accessible. And if you said that on examination, like there was actually inguinal lymphadenopathy or, or, or wherever it's palpable, like that's good news because like that can be that can be excised and we can look at that. So I think we have like a couple of a couple of spots where we can actually get some tissue, which could help us. Or maybe it comes back just inflammatory and we still don't know what it is. But I think that's like going to be really important for the TB component of this workup, for the cancer component of this workup, the other infections that can cause this part of the workup. So I think that's that's where the money is. Also, we haven't done any, as far as I heard, we didn't do any imaging yet of the abdopelvis, but we know the lymphadenopathy extends below that. So I think that would be something that, like, I would add that on right away because we need to see that and the MR of the head to uh, better clarify the lesions there. 
and uh, I'm going to have to think about the metabolic and electrolyte disturbances uh, that you had mentioned. You know, I, I, I have a we have a teaching practice here at St. Paul, so I go over cases like this with trainees all the time, and we're pretty disciplined when it comes to making problem lists, and I think this is definitely a case where a problem list is essential. So I would list as the first problem fever, night sweats, weight loss, and adenopathy. I'm going to I'm going to dare to lump those things together. And then I have other items that I maybe I'm going to leave on their own for now, like the hypertension, hypertensive urgency. I'm going to have that as a separate issue because I don't immediately see how to tie that in with the first issue. She has an elevated bicarb and I assume a low anion gap, and so I'm going to say that's a, a small thing, but may at some point give us a clue like like people, for example, with paraproteinemias have these low anion gaps, and so I'm certainly wondering about that as a possible clue down the road. And then there's this occipital lesion on her CT head that needs further characterization. And is that related to the first issue or not? Not clear. So I, I you know, I teach that, that the problem lists are important, but I actually really do live it when it comes to a case like this. So let me support that. I, I actually think that the only way you can solve this problem is actually to consider the problem list. There's so many abnormalities that you'd get lost in pursuing each of the abnormalities. So to bring us back, her problem was she went to the ophthalmologist or optometrist because of visual changes and was told at that point that she had papilledema. It's a pretty unusual presentation for papilledema. So, and and had this for at least three months. Uh, And her second problem is that she's had weight loss and fevers. And those are her problems. The rest are our problems. I think also when you have like, when you do have papilledema, you do have potential brain lesions, like you, you both like, you want that LP, like that would be useful, but you're definitely not going to do it until like you are convinced that the papilledema and the hypertension and the presumed uh, high, like elevated uh, CSF pressure has come down. So like, that's another place that like, that is tissue essentially, like that's another place to interrogate that we can't go yet. But I'm going to keep that in my head. As soon as that's appropriate, we we should probably do an LP, a procedure that we, for some reason, sometimes avoid, but is like a totally useful, pretty easy to do, low risk procedure. You know, I just want to comment that it's it's interesting to me that you say that because it's not avoided if somebody else does it. It's always interesting to have the result. But I've actually been in in situations where the neurologist said, well, why don't you do an LP? And for whatever reason, it seems to be that it's the procedure of deference or at least avoidance for those people that want to know the results but don't want to do the procedure. And I don't know if anybody else has had that experience, but that seems to be the way it is. 100%. Because it's like when if you do it and you get it right away, you're like, yeah, this procedure is easy. Like position, like this, that, like it's all about the setup. Then you do it and you get the needle in and you look like such a rock star. And then you do it another time exactly the same way. And you just cannot get it. And it's so frustrating. So, yeah, I get that. All right. I'm going to bring us back. We'll definitely come back to the LP. Um, I also feel that in particular, this case was helpful to have a problem list. And so you've mentioned most of the things that, you know, I had come up with initially, the hypertensive emergency, the papilledema, whether you bring those together or not, the lymphadenopathy, the constitutional symptoms, this uh, central nervous system lesion that she has that looks like a cavernous malformation the sclerotic bone lesions, and then she does have a few um, electrolyte abnormalities, the hyperphosphatemia and the elevated bicarb as well that we can put further down our list but bring them in. I'd even want to park 
this, you know, her daughter dying of some mysterious febrile illness at the age of 10. Like, this is probably not related, but it's the kind of thing that I would put in my initial note. And then three days from now, if I'm completely lost, which let's be honest, is pretty okay. likely, I'll <laughs> at least go back to that fact and say, like, does anyone know anything more about this? Like, can you tell me anything about that? Is that totally. is that likely to help us here? Probably not, but I would I would park it right now. I'm casting the net pretty wide. I, I'm getting a sense that this is not going to be a slam dunk in the, over the next 48 hours. Right. Okay. So I'll give you some more information, some of which she asked for, a few things maybe not. Um, so she does get some follow-up blood work that includes a... Ionized calcium is normal. Magnesium and phosphate are now normal. That hyperphosphatemia self-resolved. We did um, it. <laughs> fix that Case at least. Closed. We Take did it. Lymphadenopathy um, is all gone. <laughs> we nailed it. Her PTH um, is done as well and is normal. Um, and then she gets a serum protein electrophoresis done. Um, uh, Dr. Boy had mentioned that hyperparaproteinemia. Um, it shows a polyclonal increase in the gamma region. That's all they comment on at this point. Her gamma globulin is 17. Uh, she does get, um, so for you, Danny, a CT of the abdomen, um, which shows multiple sclerotic lesions once again throughout her entire bony skeleton, but no primary malignancy is identified. They also comment, they don't commit, but they say that her liver is generous in size, but they think maybe there's an accessory lobe rather than it being true hepatomegaly. And then she's also noted to have this nonspecific stranding throughout her retroperitoneum, as well as multiple small retroperitoneal lymph nodes. She also, somewhat unclear, but gets an abdominal ultrasound to further investigate. Um, the kidneys are relatively unremarkable, um, although they do comment on an angiomyolipoma, um, which is usually a benign lesion. And then her spleen is at the upper limit of normal, measuring 13.3 centimeters. I kind of feel like I'm going to essentially assume hepatosplenomegaly, like, yes, it's at the upper limits of normal, but like both of them in this situation. Yeah, that's that's how we took it as well. She's but both lady. of them, she's a small woman. Yeah, so, and so 13 for a small centimeters woman, for a small lady is pretty big. Yeah. And I think when we went down and talked to radiology, they made the same comment that it's a upper limit normal, but for her size, that's a, a big spleen. She also gets MRI of the brain done, um, which further evaluates that lesion, still in keeping with a cavernous malformation. Uh, and then they also note um, pachymeningeal thickening and enhancement in the brain, um, which is this word that keeps coming up in these more elusive cases that I've seen. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that or I'm happy to kind of offer the differential for that. It's not something we come across often. I have plenty. Go, go I ahead. Don't, I don't have plenty. <laughs> I, I, I have like a couple of things that will always be on mind for pachymeningeal enhancement will include CNS vasculitis and all secondary causes of CNS vasculitis. I even believe that I think like inflammatory amyloid can be on that list. IgG4 disease, for sure, ankyovasculitis, sarcoid, and I wonder about, like, the histiocytoses, like, Erdem Chester and Rosé Dorfman totally would have to look those up to see, like, if that's really part of it, but but they do have some of these other features that sort of on my mind with the uh, gamma region, polyclonality, and the sclerotic lesions, the hepatosplenomegaly, some of these other things. <laughs> yeah, more reasonable answer than... All that garbage I just said. You yeah. definitely have a very room-focused differential for it, but I'm, some of those things I don't have on my um, differential, but I'm sure are very true. The other things just to consider would be infection, as Stefan is talking about, and um, tumors or malignancy mm-hmm. can also give you this presentation. So can I just say that I think Danny's really included a lot of things. Erdheim Chester and Rosie Dorfman, 
are histiocytosis diseases. They're really rare diseases. Probably one sees them, one recognizes them occasionally in your lifetime of practice, just to put it in perspective. We got one the other day. Yeah. We, so, we, there's so a new seen, one in BC. Yeah, so I've Brand seen one or two of them, but it's it's they're rare. All right. Um, and then I think the last thing I'll add for now is that she does get um, a, well, attempted biopsy of one of these lymph nodes. So they uh, do a core needle biopsy of, they say, a right posterior lateral neck lesion. Unfortunately, it sounds like they actually didn't get a lymph node this time around. Um, the diagnosis comment is that there's no lymph node tissue, and this most likely ap- actually represents a lobular capillary hemangioma or pyogenic granuloma. So some more superficial lesion was biopsied at this point in time. So we don't have a lot of information Wait, from what, that. What did they biopsy then? It was a <laughs> it doesn't say like normal carotid <laughs> tissue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so they went back and tried to biopsy another lymph node? <laughs> we get, we'll get there when we get there. I you guess. know, not yet, actually. Okay. Actually, it took us a bit of time to get there. So I was just going to ask, based on that, and I know I haven't given you the lymph node that you want yet, um, but has anything new come up um, that could kind of bring together mm-hmm. her presentation? You gave, you didn't give us the lymph node we wanted. You gave us no. the lymph node we deserved. <laughs> <laughs> the stranding in the retroperitoneum, I think that's a new clue. Yeah. Of all the things I heard, I think that's, that's going to be helpful. Um, as either a thing to suggest a pattern of disease or a place to go get tissue. Maybe just add to this, uh, at this point while you're evaluating her, she's in hospital. So she's been admitted with the initial assessment of papilledema um, and hypertension, and she's there with the medical uh, personnel trying to establish a diagnosis and pull together all of the findings that you're discussing. And and actually, that that, that was something that I... That's actually why I was going down like the histiocytosis <clears throat> route mm-hmm. was because of the retroperitoneal stranding okay. that we may find out is retroperitoneal fibrosis. And that does have a shorter differential than some of the other individual pieces. And that would include Erdheim Chester, Rose Dorfman, lymphomas, some sarcomas, tuberculosis, some infections, like some other infections. IgG4 still. IgG4, you mentioned IgG4, earlier IgG4, that would be. Yeah, absolutely. So like maybe that. Maybe that's the narrowest thing in terms of differential, like the hepatosplenomegaly, not narrow at all. That like won't. That those may be biopsy sites, but those won't uh, like help us put it together without tissue. So it's so. interesting that you say this because your key logs were not my key log. Huh. So uh, well, you, no, you, no, like, you like good news. you like social history. No, no, so. I, I do. No, no, I, I I do. But what I'm saying, but so my key log in this situation, I thought might give a give rise to the answer. I'm not saying it does or doesn't, but my key log were these sclerotic bone lesions, uh, which seem to be commented upon over and over and over again. Every time no special image was done for the bones, it was done for something else. And then the comment, the background noise was always, there are multiple sclerotic bone lesions. I wonder if people were thinking of that as like, that is the second part of whatever the primary diagnosis, like the, the diagnosis is TB. That's the bone manifestation of the TB. So we have to solve the rest, and then that tells us what the bone is, as opposed to saying, like, the bone is the site to biopsy or the primary problem or, uh, you know, one of these other things, like, down the line causes bone disease. If it's lymphoma, then it's, like, or, or cancer, then it's Mets to bone. Yeah. But that's, like, so I think I also, when I was thinking of the issues list, I think I also kind of skipped that as, like, we solve that one, we solve everything else, and maybe you're right that we... I, I'm not we sure I'm right. I'm just saying that, that in the constellation of pre- the presentation, 
this seemed to be that many many parts of this are unusual, but this seemed to be repetitively commented upon as unusual. So um, I'll bring us back to kind of what we know she has at this point. So we know hypertension, papilledema, the sclerotic bone lesions that Dr. Kastens mentioned, the lymphadenopathy, constitutional symptoms, this PAC meningeal enhancement, and then the, I had a query here, but I think we'll say hepatosplenomegaly at this point. So I think it sounds like Dr. Kasson wants a better idea about these bone lesions. And I think that's what at this point her treating team wanted to do as well. So she does actually get a biopsy, a core biopsy of one of the bone lesions. Unfortunately, once again, it's a non-diagnostic specimen. It shows mostly normal appearing hematopoietic marrow that they got from the bone with a few clustered foci of plasma cells. You know, they commented that there could be, there are additional stains they could do, but the likelihood of them assisting with the diagnosis is very low. Overall, it seems to be normal tissue at this point. Doesn't sound normal, (laughs) but okay. (laughs) Clusters of plasma cells. Yeah, that sounds quite spooky. (laughs) Do I have clusters of plasma cells? I don't think I do. Do I? I don't don't think so. so. Mine are... Mind travel soul. I think, yeah. I think yours are free, free travelers. Yeah. From the pathology standpoint, they weren't overly concerned about that being um, uh, an abnormality. They said okay. generally this is kind of a non-specific reactive pattern um, that we're getting from from those, even with those additional stains that they did in the end. Um, so overall, we still haven't found a diagnosis. Non-diagnostic lymph node and a non-diagnostic bone lesion, unfortunately. Do we so, have anything that like chases down that those the plasma cell aggregates? Like, do we have flow cytometry um, to look for like a lymphoproliferative disorder? Like to go with the SPEP, the lymphocytes in the bone biopsy that maybe that is non-specific, maybe not normal, but non-specific. Do we have anything else pointing to like some kind of B cell disease? Yeah, so this is where I think I probably don't know enough about the pathology to say whether you could do flow cytometry or not. I know that they did um, particular stains, a CD20 and a CD3, to look for which type of B and T cells there were. And overall, that didn't suggest like a particular monoclonal population um, or something to kind of hang our hat on. So then I would ask you kind of where would you go next? What's What can we try next to find an answer? I think what, what I do in this situation... This is, I'm going to tell you exactly what I do because it's pretty <laughs> stupid, but I, I think it works sometimes, is is I would actually write out a Venn diagram of things that I think cluster together and then see where things that I, I'm not sure are related could have an overlapping and unifying diagnosis. So, for example, like here I'm going to, again, lump the fever, sweats, weight loss, and adenopathy as a thing that I think are probably, as, as things that I think are probably related. The sclerotic bone lesions, as I don't know, I, I, let's guess that they're related, but I'm not sure. And then, or, or maybe those are a subset of all the diseases. The, the diseases that cause sclerotic bone lesions are a subset somehow of the diseases that also cause fever chills, sweats, and weight loss and adenopathy. And then the retroperitoneal stranding, which I don't know enough about. And then maybe even this pachymeningeal enhancement as a thing to look up. I would throw a bunch of these things uh, into Google and then see what Google spits out i think that's a good idea like it it it's is not gonna le- kill anyone anyway yeah, yeah and it's free it's free so <laughs> yeah it's I quick that's it's quick it's free that seems like a good idea because like we're, we're circling it like we well we know something's wrong <laughs> we we have some very specific um features that i think like some features are like ungoogleable um like fatigue 
ungoogleable. Like it, the list is way too long. But when you, we in our heads are doing this Venn diagram, if you put it into PubMed or Google, it will perhaps hopefully shrink that Venn diagram or add some like whole categories that like we just didn't think of, like and like weird endocrinopathies mm-hmm. that like I'm I'm not good at endocrine, so like maybe there's something there, a polyglandular disorder that I like I really don't know enough about, and that would like tie it together and be like, oh okay, gotta think about that. That wasn't on my list, so I totally agree. That's a good idea. All right, so maybe you know while our listeners at home perhaps are googling what could bring together these things. We here, while not Googling, will give you some more information that that we do get from the case. So we go back to the lymph node and actually get an excisional biopsy this time, this time of an actual lymph node. So the posterior cervical lymph node comes back as benign reactive lymphoid hyperplasia. They're quite convinced there's no sign of lymphoma. They have it specially reviewed by the BC Cancer Agency and nothing to suggest lymphoma. Um, They also do special stains to look for a Kaposi's sarcoma, um, and that's not found as well. So overall, benign and reactive. Um, And they do perform flow cytometry for that lymph node analysis, and there's no diagnostic abnormalities. So at this point, um, she's finally managed from a hypertension perspective, and she's discharged from hospital, um, now on bisoprolol, amlodipine, ramipril, and chlorthalidone to keep her blood pressure under control. Um, And rifampin and isoniazid. (laughs) Not at this point. If if she was in the Philippines, I'm guessing someone would have empirically treated this woman for tuberculosis. Totally. I could be be wrong, but I mean, this is... All of this could be, every single thing here could absolutely be tuberculosis. In addition to calling Google, what I would also want to do is to like talk to someone who's worked in the Philippines to say like, can I just run this case by you? And this person would say, oh, this woman has tuberculosis. They'd be like, okay, what's your question about everything that's not her tuberculosis? (laughs) Because she obviously has that. Because I can't explain the bicarb with tuberculosis, but everything else sounds like tuberculosis. (laughs) So not the thoughts at the time. I think very good points overall. Um, But she was not treated for TB. The lymph node didn't show evidence on the, you know, cultures that we had that it was TB. So We were reassured. Granted, we didn't have the full eight weeks to incubate. So she's discharged. She's arranged for a bilateral mammogram for the concern of this being potentially metastatic disease. Um, There wasn't anything, I think, on exam in hospital. Um, Can we we comment on, like, metastatic breast cancer? Like, does this... Sclerotic bone lesions, yes. Retroperitoneal fibrosis or stranding, no. I've I've never heard of that. I mean, mean, you could fill a lot of space with all the things I don't know, (laughs) but, but... That would be news for me. And also, you know, fever chills and sweats and weight loss without, like, I don't know. It's not know not, my, not my illness script. I'd expect That's to see, weird. you know, probably lung meds, pleural effusions, yeah, a, like, a mass in the breast. A mass in, like, right, chest, brain, like, yeah. to have gone to bone everywhere, bone everywhere, yeah, and skipped, like, other common places for breast cancer to go. I don't know. Like, that... I, I, you know, it, that is a totally reasonable thing to do, but like I, I would do it and be like, we're doing it because it's reasonable, not because I think that's what you actually have. Yeah. And it's going to sound like like the disclosure there is going to sound like, okay, you know, we're trying to rule out or, or you've got breast cancer and we still think you have tuberculosis. <laughs> exactly. You know, like, right. Even if you find something, I'd yeah. say, well, I'm not satisfied. Right. Plus yeah. TV. And okay. I, I get the sense, not having been there at that moment, that that's where things were. We're still very confused as to what's going on with her and do want to cover 
all our bases. So looking forward to you swooping in and solving this case instantly. (laughs) And a diagnostic procedure was performed. (laughs) (laughs) All right. She's also actually referred to the BC Cancer Agency, even though nothing showed lymphoma for a suspicion. Um, And that was actually pending some of the final results from the lymph node um, biopsy at that time. So uh, she's seen in follow-up, actually, in the hypertension clinic originally. Her blood pressure's been reasonable. Her weight's been stable. Her night sweats are better. Um, They review her cancer screening history, and three years ago, she had a normal mammogram. She had a pap smear two years ago that was normal, and a recent FIT test that was negative. Um, She does complain of some worsening uh, reflux and early satiety over the last six months. Now I have a bit more of a thorough physical exam for you. Um, So blood pressure in the clinic at this point was 150 over 80. She still had a 2 centimeter mobile posterior cervical chain lymph node on the right and then an incision where one was removed. They thought perhaps subtle lymph nodes in the axilla bilaterally but none palpable in the inguinal region. Her breast exam was unremarkable with no masses, discharge, dimpling, lungs were clear, cardiovascular exam was unremarkable at this point. Overall, just to kind of bring us back a little bit, um, this is a 60-year-old lady from the Philippines who presented with severe hypertension, papilledema, three-month history of constitutional symptoms with lymphadenopathy and multiple sclerotic bone lesions. She also has, as we mentioned, the finding of nonspecific retroperitoneal stranding, um, hepatomegaly, pachymeningeal enhancement on MRI, and so far excisional lymph node and sclerotic bone lesion biopsies have been non-diagnostic, with those bone lesions showing infiltration of atypical plasma cells, but again, no diagnostic phenotypic abnormality. She's got early satiety. Do you think that's the hepatosplenomegaly? Or? They're not that big. That's true. I I don't know. That that should that doesn't fit. Like So at this point, I'd say we're not sure. I mean, that's, that's an understatement. We don't know what's going on. And so any new clue, I would just park it somewhere and say, okay, like that, you know, that could be another avenue to explore. Not everyone with early satiety needs a scope, but if it's you know, early satiety and someone who's lost a significant amount of weight, yeah, at some actually, point, that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I would tell a gastroenterologist, like, she swallowed $200, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> please go for it. Um, please go for it. <laughs> Any other thoughts at this point? I think so, I kind of like I like the list we've come up with. It's it's not going to be exhaustive enough without doing some more reading up around the case, like refreshing ourselves on some of these specifics, like pachymeningitis, like which specific fungal infections cause that, like which ones do we really need to worry about thinking about bone cancers that can cause like these sclerotic lesions, cancers that cause sclerotic lesions like i'd have to read about like kind of those individual pieces Mm -hmm. the retroperitoneal fibrosis of course like i need to read a little bit more because when i when i talk about my venn diagram i guess what i mean is is like the list of fever fever sweats weight loss and adenopathy is really 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 long but i at least i have a handle on it and so i would look up the things that cause sclerotic bone lesions the things that cause retroperitoneal fibrosis or stranding and then see what the and and then the pachymeningeal enhancement and see what diagnoses are in common between those different problems. Right. But let me say that, I, I mean, I think that we all use Venn diagrams in our minds. I mean, that's how we come to clinical reasoning. We have to at least start with the postulate that something might be related. You don't have 50 separate issues. You have, so we try to batch them if they sound similar. And I think what you're doing is what I think good clinicians do. And you brought up the issue of key log. And the question is key log. So, if we saw this case from an ophthalmologist's point of view, because we're the ophthalmologist, and we'd say, oh my God, there's papilledema. And if we saw this case from 
the radiologist's point of view, they don't see papilledema. They're seeing sclerotic bone lesions, and if we and so and so on, it goes on and on and on. If we're the hypertension person, we see this through the hypertension lens, and so there are multiple potentially different people who are looking at this person through a lens that may actually not consider the other parts of the of the picture. We haven't been involved, I think, do we get involved fairly quickly? Mm-hmm. So we haven't been involved to this point. You, you could say that for the infectious diseases specialist, the key log here is that this woman is from an, ende- an endemic of course. area for tuberculosis. Of so, course. I, and, yeah. and so there are multiple different views of this lady depending on, on how you approach her. And in fact, so one of the things that I like to do is to find out not what our Venn diagram is, but what her, what she's complaining of, and go back because when you're so many different things, I think you have to anchor on something, like what problem are we trying to solve, our problem or her problem, and her problem was her visual problems, that's why, and then her weight loss and the fevers and things. That's what she was basically complaining of. I think that's a good reminder for us to like we have to follow up to make sure that as her hypertension has improved, not resolved yet that her papilledema is gone, and we haven't done that yet. So that is also like on my, my issues list. If I saw her in GIM clinic right. as an outpatient, like when's your follow-up with Optha? That's important. Yeah. That would be my, I think that would be essential as the hypertension team. Great. Yeah. Great. Okay. So I'll bring her back in in short order. Um, I'll just give you a few other things she had in the meantime. Um, so she has tumor markers done, including CA125, 19.9, alpha feta protein, and a CA153, all of which are normal. I think we'll parking lot the discussion of how useful or not those are for now, but they're all normal. And she also has a PET scan done, which overall just confirms that she has increased activity in lymph nodes and with the sclerotic bone lesions that she had before. How about um, the retroperitoneum? Um, It picks up um, lymph nodes in the periortic and aortic cable regions. Actually, just looking over it again here, it does not pick up increased activity in that retroperitoneal stranding posteriorly. She also so does get that mammogram done. Interestingly, there's some calcifications in the right breast that would potentially be consistent with an in-situ breast cancer. So she has that excised. In fact, it's actually a benign lesion and we put that to rest oh, as well. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I'm a terrible doctor. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm like, all right, I'm back, I'm back to being okay. Yeah, you're all right. She gets another bone biopsy of a lesion in S1 that again shows kind of these lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate, but nothing specific once again to suggest what's going on. That actually pairs with IgG4 or lymphoma, yeah. uh, but yeah. like that is like lymphoplasmacytic infiltration is is part of that disorder so maybe bone is not where you see like the story form fibrosis mm-hmm. and, like the other aspects of that and maybe it's an eosinophilia but yeah okay. I think about that. great so we'll definitely make sure that we keep that on our differential as we go through for her okay so i promise we bring her back um so she comes back in um and over the past month now so um she's developed new onset paresthesias that are radiating down her left leg. And in addition, she endorses this occasional tingling sensation in the left side of her head and her neck. 
And she's also noticed that her hands have kind of an abnormal temperature sensation and they frequently feel cold when she wouldn't expect them to. And she's noticed kind of worsening erythema and skin changes on her hands bilaterally. She also gets more lab work done. Her TSH is done and it's elevated at 8.12. Random cortisol is normal. Uh, she has a repeat SPEP that confirms this polyclonal increase in the gamma globulin region, and she has a urine protein electrophoresis that's negative. She also has an MRI of the thoracic and lumbar spine, um, which again shows sclerotic lesions and um, suspicion of cervical lymphadenopathy, just where they caught it. And another MRI of the brain confirms pachymeningeal enhancement, but nothing new has come up. So she's been subjected to a number of investigations. And this has all taken place over about six months yeah. or eight months or something in that order from the time she presented to and we were about to see her now is that correct yeah the one person she sees before us is danny um you had wanted her to see ophthalmology so um she actually does go and see a neuro ophthalmologist um, for follow-up of the papilledema and there's kind of suggestion comes back as to whether we should do this lumbar puncture or not for her. Um, you commented before on kind of wanting to confirm that the papilledema or the increase in cranial pressure was gone before doing so. Um, what are your feelings on that at this point? I think the absence of papilledema would make me more comfortable to do an LP. I think that is like one area we've not interrogated, but is certainly involved. It may give us a little bit of kind of adjacent access to that uh, pachymeningitis. It's another place to do like uh, cytology. So I want it, but it, it really, if she still has papilledema, then I am not brave enough to do it. Like, I, I don't know what opto, neuro opto is a great person to ask that question to, I think. I'd totally defer to them. Yeah, I, so, I need their expertise here. Of course. And really interesting question that I think came up as part of this case, because I think we learn of rote, the, the cases where, you know, we're anxious about doing a lumbar puncture where there's any kind of mass or increased intracranial pressure. Interestingly, when you go to the literature, there are actually very specific criteria that are contraindications to an LP, which is actually depends on whether there's kind of pressure change across the falx cerebri and whether there's a pressure gradient across different compartments. And so I think with that and kind of with more experience, the neuro-ophthalmologist did feel comfortable going ahead and was one person who did not defer then doing this procedure. And so she did get a lumbar puncture done. It uh, showed a normal opening pressure at this point, 16.5. Um, normal cell counts, glucose was normal. Really, the only abnormality is that she had an elevated protein at 0.86. Um, they also tested for syphilis that was negative, and AFB stain was negative. When we got these results for two weeks, the mycobacterial culture was negative, cryptococcal antigen was negative, and they also did an uh, ACE level in the CSF that was normal too. All right. So finally, this is when we saw her in our well, clinic. But yeah. you might comment as well that the neuro-ophthalmologist said papilledema persists. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. So you sent her back to the neuro-ophthalmologist and papilledema is still there. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, I made a big fuss about it and now I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> oh, great. I was just hoping it would solve itself, like the rest of this case. And I think that's where talking to your colleagues can be helpful. And we did speak with the neuro-ophthalmologist in this case and you know, she thought that this might be kind of one of our key logs for the case. Um, I'll give you some of her suggestions a little bit further because we really spoke to her, I think, after we got a bit more history from the patient. So I'll tell you kind of what she told us and what we saw when we saw her in our clinic. So uh, just in fairness, I mm -hmm. mean, at the time we saw her, there was, we had a provisional 
approach and, and a provisional diagnosis, it, it seemed to correspond to what she was thinking, although we actually were privy to what she was thinking because we actually hadn't had any conversations with her. And so it, in, in terms of venting, we actually vend opinions, not just vend objective findings. So it, it was helpful. It may not help the diagnosis, but it was helpful to vend those opinions. Okay. So then we saw her here. She's feeling relatively well. Um, she was previously kind of seeing these bright spots in her vision, particularly when she looked down. But she said since having the lumbar puncture, it's actually gotten better. So she's really happy that that was done for her. Um, she has, as I mentioned before, noticed that her hands are becoming more red, worse in the morning. Her constitutional symptoms have gone away, um, but this tingling sensation in the left side of her head down the left leg, that's persisted as well. And then she's also noticed a slight chest tightness in the cold and some shortness of breath on exertion. Uh, when we see her in our clinic, her blood pressure remains elevated, 164 on 74, heart rate 60. Uh, she does not have a positive pulses paradoxus, 10 millimeters of mercury. Head and neck exam on fundoscopy, she Possibly to our non-neuro-ophthalmology eyes still had evidence of papilledema. Um, she did have palpable right posterior cervical chain lymphadenopathy. Her JVP now was up at the angle of the jaw, and she had a positive Kussmaul sign, so it was going up with inspiration. And she had a grade 2 out of 6 systolic murmur that was loudest at the right second intercostal space and radiating to the carotids. And she also had mild pedal edema. Lungs were clear, good air entry. Her abdomen was protuberant, and at this point she had palpable hepatomegaly and a palpable spleen. Um, no fluid wave, no shifting dullness. Uh, she had no palpable axillary or inguinal lymphadenopathy, and she did have a thickening and a redness of the skin of her hands and her arms. Uh, cranial nerve exam was normal, but overall she was diffusely hyporeflexic, and um, overall we weren't able to elicit a left patellar tendon reflex. So I, I think it was really helpful to see her because you've heard, as we'd heard, all of these innumerable pathologies some and observations. And this was an, a situation where we had a lot of the information. We had all of the information you've heard, but seeing her in the clinic and examining her actually helped us. Kind of feels like you just told me a totally different case, yeah. though. Like, <laughs> when, when these are completely the, different. When you mentioned <laughs> the hand findings, Danny just basically jumped out of his skin <laughs> yeah. I thought he was going to explode <laughs> so Danny is back on I think we're we're re-entering Danny's realm of expertise yeah, I, here. So. I I'm uh, that concerns me I, I I'm not sure that the diseases that I have like some domain over like adequately answer all of the questions all at the same time and I hate the idea of this being multiple diseases all happening at the same time and all severe so, like, I do think there's a unifying diagnosis. Uh, this is pretty weird. Can you tell me a little bit about the the skin over the hands? Can you clarify that a little bit for me? Where it was and yeah. what it looked like? And, yeah. So And what you found on capillaroscopy? <laughs> I did not do capillaroscopy. <laughs> I'm, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, I'm joking. But I'll say overall it was mostly kind of on the dorsum of the hands, more of kind of a reddish, purplish discoloration. Would you say... It was hyperpigmented. I think, yeah, overall. Was it tight? She did have a little bit of tightening. I think it was. Uh, it was. It, 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 it wasn't thickened? really. It was. It, it was more discolored than thickened. She confirmed the our observation that it had changed. She didn't make the observation. That it wasn't symptomatic. Her other. Her she other had bigger fish to fry. Yeah, I think, exactly. Like her other symptoms changing. predominated. And it was over the back of the hand, 
but did it involve the fingers? As far as I remember, yes. The only reason I ask is like scleroderma and the scleroderma mimics. One of like the important features is whether or not it does involve the fingers. Scleroderma involves the fingers. You can have scleroderma sine scleroderma, but the skin involvement requires that the, the finger involvement. So if it doesn't involve the fingers, then you think of the mimics like scleromyxedema, scleroedema, the toxic oil syndromes, eosinophilic fasciitis uh, that Barry was talking about earlier tonight. So like then you start to get into those ballparks. And some of those have like very specific associations, like some of them are strongly associated with hematologic malignancy. Some are associated with like eosinophilic fasciitis, associated with exercise, like heavy duty exercise for some reason. And some of them are associated with endocrinopathies. So if if that is, you know, you'd want to examine that and like really get your head around exactly what's wrong and whether this person has Raynaud's, also a really common feature in scleroderma, like absent those common scleroderma things, I'd look at those scleroderma mimics, and this may be a new narrow window into the case. There's just not a lot of things that make the skin tight. Um, so I, I think that would be, those are the new considerations that I have. Okay. Any other thoughts at the moment? I'm interested in her leg paresthesias, which, you know, I had a little like poems flickered through my mind about eight minutes ago. But now I'm back. Kind of, I mean, you know, I think these are all kind of amorphous. We, we group them together with these like acronyms that may or may not really represent the pathophysiology of the problem. Sounds like she's got an inflammatory problem of some variety. There's no monoclonal peak. So, you know, not so hot for poems, although it doesn't even have to be there. Should be there. Yeah, I think this is in Danny's ballpark, probably. Ugh. Again, <laughs> even when I don't present the case, it ends up. Welcome back to Rheumatology <laughs> yeah. Hour with yeah. Dr. Danny Ennis. Oh, great. Okay, well. Do you want to tell us what features are making you bring up poems as a possibility? Uh, I mean, I'm gonna, let's say that maybe she's got a neuropathy, and she's got organomegaly, and her TSH is all of a sudden high, and she's got skin changes. So she's got pose <laughs> as it stands right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's really smart. Do you want to talk about what we thought might be happening at this point? Yeah, definitely. So so I guess I'll just start again with saying that we had spoken with the neuro-ophthalmologist about the papilledema, and she had raised the question of poems that it can show up with that feature. And then also with the new skin changes that she had noticed. And as um, Svanu brought up with the, um, the TSH being elevated, the question of a new endocrinopathy. Um, as you very rightly pointed out, she has not yet shown any evidence of a monoclonal protein, um, which is typically one of the key features of poems. There are other features that people are not as familiar with often that don't quite fit into the acronym, and those are some of the things that we were looking for on her examination. And so one of them is that she now seems to have evidence of some extravascular volume overload with the elevated JVP and the pedal edema, um, and that was a new finding that we had not seen before. I'll kind of bring us to the diagnostic criteria in a second so we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, but two things we had just wanted to confirm for ourselves was that query organomegaly. So we did ask for another abdominal ultrasound for her. And once again, kind of the same comments were made about the spleen seeming mildly bulky. The liver was somewhat prominent in size, but overall our feeling still was that was consistent with an organomegaly for her body size. And then given the new findings of possible heart failure, we just had wanted to do an echocardiogram for her. So that was done. She had normal systolic function, left and right ventricle. Um, the 
main abnormality was that she had a moderately elevated pulmonary artery systolic pressure at 58 millimeters of mercury. So in an attempt to kind of bring everything together for ourselves, um, I remember actually Dr. Kasten sitting me down and saying, this is a complicated patient. Let's think about all the different systems of her body that are involved. That's maybe one other way to look at it is to go kind of head to toe and see what's going on. So from a central nervous system perspective, we know she had a high CSF protein. She had papilledema. She had pachymeningeal sorry, enhancement and this cavernous malformation in the occipital lobe. From a cardiovascular standpoint, she had an elevated JVP, evidence of peripheral edema, and now the pulmonary hypertension. From a GI standpoint, she had hepatomegaly. Her skin, so my question, it seemed to me, actually, this is the word I use at the time, kind of a hyperkeratosis, and then I wondered about sort of a sclerodermoid change in her hands. So from an MSK standpoint, she did have sclerotic bone lesions, uh, and hematologic, she had this possible splenomegaly as well. And then kind of multi-system, she had had these constitutional symptoms, including the significant weight loss and night sweats, although these do seem to be improving. So the main considerations that we had at this point were things that I think have already been brought up, the possibility of a still a lymphoproliferative disorder with the lymph nodes and the constitutional symptoms, although so far her biopsies had been non-diagnostic. Um, IgG4-related disease, definitely Danny, as you brought up, with the retroperitoneal stranding and the lymphadenopathy, although the sclerotic bone lesions are something that are not quite in keeping with that. And then the big question we had really was, was this kind of an atypical poems, although she was lacking that M protein. Um, so to bring you just to, to poems and, and what uh, typically, although it's a rare thing that we would see, um, the acronym itself is for polyneuropathy, organomegaly, endocrinopathy, monoclonal protein, and skin changes. However, other things that can be seen include um, an osteosclerotic myeloma, Castleman's disease, elevated levels of vascular endothelial growth factor or VEGF, organomegaly, endocrinopathy, I mentioned that already, edema, uh, skin changes, and papilledema as well. So our question really was, did she meet criteria at this point? And classically, the criteria for Poems syndrome are you have two mandatory criteria. You must have polyneuropathy and a monoclonal plasma cell proliferative disorder. So at this point, she has a possible polyneuropathy with findings that we've had, but on multiple tests so far, she's not had a monoclonal protein that has shown up. Then the major criteria, which you need to have one, is osteosclerotic bony lesions, which she has, Castleman disease, which has not been seen, an elevated VEGF level, um, which we were waiting for, and um, then from a minor criteria standpoint, of which you also need one, it includes organomegaly, extravascular volume overload, endocrinopathy, skin changes, haploedema, and then also either thrombocytosis or polycythemia. And I didn't put that in, but um, on several of her CBCs, she did have an elevated platelet count as well, going back over oh, the last Oh, you year. can tell us the platelet count. <laughs> I know, oh, I know. Was, that would have solved it all. Yeah. So she had everything except the gammopathy. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. And she had like a polygammopathy, yeah. but no mono, gammopathy. Yeah. And there is a comment made when you look further into poems that sometimes you can get a hypergammaglobulinemia that then if you do immunofixation, you find the monoclonal cell disorder. But for her, so far, the immunofixation has not shown a monoclonal cell population. So this is 
really kind of where we were and largely where we still are, although I have one piece of information to add um, with her case. And this is where actually, you know, I'd be interested to hear kind of where your suggestions would be as to where we maybe could go next in terms of trying to put this all together. Could you buy, obviously, a retroperitoneum? Yeah. You could. Yeah. What would to, to look for? Stain it for IgG4. I mean, we know her IgG4 levels are normal, but I'd probably get yeah. it stained for that. We, we looked in her stomach. We know that she doesn't have some. I don't think she's had no, any I don't, I don't GI think she has. Does she still have the early satiety? Uh, it's a bit complicated yeah. uh, because while we were evaluating her, she had an intercurrent problem that delayed our further evaluation that had nothing to do with this. It was just, it was a traumatic problem that, that incapacitated her for a few months. And then is it inconceivable to get immunofixation on her SPEP? No. It, no, she's had that. She's had that done. Didn't, didn't oh, show. Didn't show yeah. yeah. And she's had a bone marrow biopsy as well? So not... Um, at this time in the case, but since then she has. So I think that's a really good thought. Um, we had looked at the bone itself, but not the bone marrow. Um, so she did, sorry, I'll just get there in a few other things, um, have a bone marrow done since um, I last saw her, um, which the flow cytometry showed a small population of polytypic B cells. But then when they put everything together with the aspirate, the, bi- the biopsy and the flow cytometry, they said overall it's still there's a mild increase in polytypic plasma cells in keeping with the reactive etiology. They still couldn't give us any monoclonal protein. They just won't play ball. <laughs> How frustrating. So, I mean, really the question kind of we had at this point is, can you have POEM syndrome without a monoclonal protein? Jeez, you're asking the wrong guy over here on our staff, you know? I don't think, I don't think so. I don't think so. You can't call it POEMs. Well, uh, yes, you can. So you can have mono, you can have poem. I suppose it makes sense because it's not certain what the pathophysiology is of all of these lesions, and so the order in which you get them. So, so in fact, you can have make the diagnosis, but you can't make the diagnosis. You need something other than your just all of these additives. But so VEGF has become the other uh, criteria for making and? the diagnosis. And her VEGF is pending. Oh, oh man. Actually, <laughs> I hate I can, these cliffhanger episodes. I can tell you that I called the Mayo lab yesterday, and her VEGF level, which we had done before and was normal, is actually elevated and quite significantly elevated. Now, that's something Thanks. I learned just now. Really? Incredible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I, yeah. So, sure. So, I, would, I, would, I agree. If her VEGF is positive, <laughs> You held it in this whole time. I didn't know this. I've been waiting for the VEGF for for two months. She got you. You should have called. Uh, yeah, okay. Then I think we're there, probably. So it's a really interesting problem. And you, you, you both took the approach that I think we took, that it's a complex problem. We learned a lot by looking at this lady. But I think one of the things that we learned is hearing all the information doesn't necessarily put you in the... Seeing this lady, even without more history, examining her and looking at her with all of these findings made us approach this, I think, differently than we would have singly looking at laboratory investigations and deciding how best to do things. And I think one of the issues has was just that everybody saw their component through their lens, which is appropriate. That's what we wanted. But no, But we had the opportunity of seeing her now farther down the line 
because all of these investigations, many of these investigations are done. She had an elevated VEGF, so I think that she's got poems. Yeah, I agree. And I think that this is really important for her because it'll make a big difference if we're able to approach her with any form of therapy. What I think really, like, I think the case actually ended up hinging on you guys doing a physical exam that actually went outside of the known entities that were being looked for because you identified like the features of the cases that actually fit very poorly like that that actually are like somewhat outside of many of these venn diagrams so you found the volume overload you found weird skin changes that are like localized and pretty specific so I, i think like that ended up being an important part of the way that you guys ended up approaching it and that is an important lesson that we are kind of taught to do focused histories and physicals like once you get good right like like at the beginning you just examine everything no matter what your pretest probability is and then later on you start to narrow it down because it's like any test like pretest probability post-test probability that's the only reason you should do a physical exam is if it could help you um and and certainly in like these cases this person either had tb or something really rare and a, and a difficult presentation no matter what it was so your pretest probability who knows what it is like how could you possibly establish it for any of those diagnoses except perhaps tb so i think for that person you really should do a general physical exam and just keep your eyes open see what you see you wrote down like you found that one of the reflexes was gone that's important like that's not nothing that actually points you towards diagnoses not away so i think like that that is very impressive that's like the most important thing that was done for this person was and, a good physical exam. And I'll underscore it. You know, it's it's uh, interesting because I heard about this case uh, and I had conversations with the physicians that were looking after her about the case. And I kept, you know, and I'd heard over the couple of months and I would intermittently talk with them. And I thought, you know, really, I don't know. I, I said, I'm not really sure that I, I can offer anything. I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, I'm, we were talking about what, you know, what next steps and where to go. And I think just to underscore what you're saying, I've been more surprised by what the physical exam or the presentation, the person in that, that comes here with their problems rather than just a list of issues. And it seems it's it, it either focuses us or it focuses them, or it's just the process of how to make, how to approach a diagnosis. But it does, it is important to actually see the person and I'm not sure it's not important just to touch things. So one of the things about distant uh, looking at uh, uh, videos and things is maybe you're not going to have the same relationship. You may see a picture, but there is some sort of alliance where physicians and patients come together to try and sort this out. And I, it sounds very hokey for me to say that. It really does. But I think that it, in this case, it was helpful. Also, you should... Absolutely still treat her for tuberculosis. <laughs> <laughs> tuberculosis well, and poems. What yes. a crazy case. Yeah. Hang on to that, will you? That, I think that's really important. Guys, thanks so much, Kat. Thank that you. was a great case. Thank you. Really Thank good. You. Yeah. 